This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, thank you very much for joining me today and for that really kind introduction. I'm very excited to tell you about some new data from my lab. Um, in which we've tried to uncover the genetic changes that led to humans becoming the sweatiest ape. So humans are distinct uh, from our closest primate relatives in that the major mechanism that we use to cool ourselves off is to use the heat of our own bodies to vaporize water from the skin surface. Now, over the course of human evolution, our species has acquired a number of um, changes to the composition of the skin, which make this an efficient system for thermoregulation. So something that you're all probably familiar with is the fact that humans don't have fur. And we don't have fur because we have miniaturized virtually all of the hair on our body to peach fuzz. This allows for higher rates of airflow over the skin and therefore higher rates of evaporation. Now, in addition, to the miniaturization of our body hair, a second very critical adaptation that enables thermoregulation um, by sweating in humans is that we have massively increased the density of eccrine sweat glands in our skin compared to other primates. Now, eccrine sweat glands are the very organs that in um, that are responsible in response to a rise in body temperature or in skin temperature for driving water from the body onto the skin surface, which is what we actually vaporize to cool off. Now, if you compare the density of eccrine sweat glands in human skin to that of a chimpanzee or to a macaque, two closely related primates, uh, in virtually any region of the body, what you'll find is that on average, humans have 10 times the density of eccrine sweat glands compared to our closest primate relatives. So a number of years ago, I became very interested in trying to understand what are the mutations and the genetic changes that evolve specifically on this human branch of the evolutionary tree that are responsible for giving um, our skin such a high density of eccrine sweat glands. So when we first started thinking about this question, um, we thought about, well, how does the skin decide how many sweat glands to build during development? Now, the reason we did this is that we know that most of evolution doesn't occur by reinventing the wheel. We know that much of species diversity is, in fact, generated by taking a highly conserved developmental paradigm or program and tweaking it to generate diversity. Now, it turns out that most of what we know about how the skin decides to build sweat glands and how many sweat glands to build comes from studies not done in mice, oh, sorry, not done in humans, but rather done in mice. So in mice, um, actually, as in most mammals outside of humans and our closest primate relatives, eccrine sweat glands are not used for thermoregulation. They're actually used for traction. And they're found not throughout the body, but they're found only on the bottom side of the paws, so the so-called um, volar skin. So what you're looking at here is the skin of a mouse paw, the bottom of the mouse paw, we've peeled the skin off and we've stained it. And these little squiggly things that you see are the ducts of individual eccrine sweat glands. Okay. Now, eccrine sweat glands develop from the outer layer of the skin during gestation, um, and that layer is called the ectoderm, and they specifically develop from these thickenings of the ectoderm called placodes. Now, again, we know from studies in the mouse that the expression of a protein called engrailed one or N1 is absolutely 
absolutely critical for um, getting these placodes to go down a path of development to become sweat glands. So this is a cross-section of mouse paw skin, the bottom of a mouse paw skin where the sweat glands are going to form. This is now during development. This is two days after the mouse is born, or P2.5. Uh, as compared to this, which is the skin of an adult mouse. What you're looking at here is this cross-section of the mouse paw skin, and everywhere that you see purple is basically cells where engrailed is being produced. Now, what we know from studies in the mouse is that the relative levels of engrailed expression at this stage of development are absolutely critical for determining how many sweat glands the mouse is going to go on and make. And we know, in fact, that the more engrailed that gets expressed in this deep layer of the ectoderm, the more sweat glands the mouse goes on to specify. In fact, this is one of the major intrinsic mechanisms, variation in engrailed one expression, uh, which mice use to generate natural variation in eccrine gland density between different mouse strains. So with this knowledge in mind, we hypothesized that perhaps one way in which humans could have evolved a higher density of eccrine sweat glands in our skin is to acquire a mutation or mutation specifically on this human branch of the tree, which resulted in a higher production of engrailed one expression at that very uh, important stage when sweat gland placodes are being specified, when the skin decides how many sweat glands it's going to build. Now, where are these mutations likely to lie? So one thing um, that we know is that the, the gene sequence for engrailed that actually encodes the engrailed protein um, is very highly conserved across primates. And in fact, we know that most evolutionarily relevant sequence changes are not likely to lie within a gene, but are likely to lie in regulatory DNA, the so-called enhancers that control where a gene is expressed, when a gene is expressed, and how much of a gene is expressed. Um, so we had to look for mutations within enhancers of engrailed, specifically the enhancers that control how much engrailed gets expressed in the skin at that critical stage of placode specification. Now, it turned out that the first thing we actually needed to do was figure out what these enhancers are, because nobody knew at the time that we started this what the regulatory elements in DNA are that control the level of expression of this gene. Now, so we performed a screen in order to search for these enhancers. Now, um, our screen was based on a very um, simple observation. Um, and that was that whether you are a mouse or a human, in regions of the skin where sweat glands are going to form, the pattern of engrailed expression is very similar. So this is a cross-section again, so that the bottom of the mouse paw, two days after the mouse is born with the placodes are being made. But this is exactly what the pattern of engrailed looks like during human gestation when the first sweat glands start to form. And so we reason because of the similarity in engrailed expression patterns that at least a subset of the enhancers that control engrailed expression should be ancient. They should be shared between mammals okay? because they're shared, this pattern is shared between mice and humans. And so therefore they should be, um, they should be identical in sequence. We should be able to ident identify them purely based on sequence conservation. Um, and so with this in mind, we used a computational method to look um, for non-coding regions, so not genes essentially, of the human genome near the engrailed locus itself, um, or the engrailed gene itself, which didn't encode proteins, but showed exceptionally high sequence conservation um, across placental mammals. And we did this across the genomes of 60 placental mammals. 
um, through a somewhat long process that I won't go into uh, of prioritizing, filtering um, our data set, we were able to identify in the end 23 priority in grailed one candidate enhancers or ECEs, each of them about a thousand base pairs long of DNA. Okay? Now, these are computationally identified. We have no idea whether or not these sequence elements actually have the ability to regulate gene expression. So we had to test this. And specifically, we needed to test it in a developmental context. The developmental context being where engrailed's expression is relevant during sweat gland development, right? So are these enhancers able to function in the cells that express engrailed at this critical placode stage of development in the skin? Now, the way we did this was in mice. We, first of all, took each ECE of these 23 ECEs and we uh, built a little DNA construct which contained the ECE and then a gene that, if turned on, would produce um, GFP protein, green fluorescent protein. Okay, so if, the, if this element is able to act as an enhancer, then it'll turn on the expression of this green fluorescent protein, and it will presumably do it in the cells where this element can function as an enhancer at the time when it can function as such. So we then package these little pieces of DNA into viruses, and we use these viruses to infect the skin, the outer layer of the mouse embryo, which gives rise to the skin during embryogenesis, essentially making uh, virally mediated transgenic mice. And then we waited. And then two days after the mice were born, we looked, do we see GFP expressing cells within that engrailed one positive domain in the skin? Now, what I'm showing you here is what we were sort of trying to look for. Again, in that cross section where engrailed is expressed in purple. And what we're looking for in our, our brown cells, because we detected our GFP using a colorimetric reaction, which get, makes the cells brown. We're looking for brown cells in that engrailed one positive domain. So using this screen, we were able to identify uh, five engrailed one candidate enhancers uh, located near the engrailed one gene itself. And for the rest of the talk, I'm going to focus on one particular element, which we called ECE18, which is located about 400 kilobases downstream of the gene in that encodes engrailed one in both humans and mice. So positionally speaking, it's in the same place in humans as it is in mice relative to the engrailed gene. So these are samples of skin from mice um, in which we expressed either the mouse, the chimpanzee, or the human version of ECE18. Um, and so, and this is just the control, which is um, just the GFP alone without, an, without ECE18. And what you, I hope, can appreciate is in this deepest layer of this, the ectoderm, uh, which is, again, the cells that express engrailed, all versions of ECE18 were able to give us brown cells. So the ECE18 versions are all able to activate gene expression in the cells that we know also express engrailed. Now, this is a qualitative assay. It doesn't actually tell us anything other than where and when the enhancer can function. It doesn't tell us anything about the relative strength or potency of the enhancer. So to do that, we had to do a slightly different type of assay. But again, using it's a reporter assay, similar to what we did in the mice. Now, in this case, we're moving to cells in a dish. And these are cultured human or mouse keratinocytes, which are skin cells. Um, in this case, we cloned different versions of ECE18 from various species across placental mammals. Um, and we cloned it upstream, not of GFP, but of a gene that would encode the luciferase enzyme. 
Now, once uh, we infect our cells with these reporters, if the enhancer is able to function, what it does is it activates the expression of luciferase, and then we can collect basically cell extract and determine how much luciferase was produced downstream of each of the ECE18 versions. And we can do this in a quantitative way using a luminometer. Um, so what I'm showing you data is from um, human cultured keratinocytes as well as mouse cultured keratinocytes. The first thing, um, and again, what we're expecting is the stronger the ECE18 enhancer, the higher the luciferase activity we're going to detect, the more enzyme got made, essentially. Um, so what I hope you can first appreciate is that the um, ECE18 doesn't really appear to be a very strong enhancer outside of simians. The second thing that should be jumping out at you is that the human version of ECE18, whether you're working with human skin cells or whether you're working with mouse skin cells, so independent of species context, the human version of ECE18 is always driving the most expression of luciferase. It's acting as the strongest enhancer in both contexts. But where is the activity coming from. So the original human ECE18 element that we cloned is, is quite long. It's about a thousand base pairs, DNA base pairs long. So to figure out where really the activity was coming from, we, we basically cut this big piece into two smaller overlapping fragments, which we called A and B. And we retested them for their relative activity in the same type of luciferase assays. And I'm showing you the results here. So here's CHIMP ECE18 as a reference. You see it's about almost threefold lower in activity than the human element. Um, and what we were able to find is that this fragment A can completely account for the quantitative activity of the full-length element all on its own. So this it's about 600 nucleotides long rather than 1,000, and that really provides all of the activity of the enhancer. But what within this region is actually important? Now, there are 10 human-derived base pair substitutions within, within this fragment. So what are derived nucleotide substitutions are essentially positions, DNA base pairs, which are identical between um, chimps and gorillas, but they're different in human in terms of sequence. Okay? So essentially, humans are different than the ancestral state in uh, great apes. So it turns out that if we mutate each one of these positions in human ECE18 back to the ancestral ape base, it makes little to no difference to the activity of the enhancer. It doesn't change it, and I'm not showing you that data here. In order to bring the activity of the human enhancer down to the level of chimpanzee or gorilla, because we got the same exact result with the gorilla, what you have to do is mutate all 10 of these positions in the human enhancer back to the ancestral ape sequence. So this tells us two very important things. It tells us, first of all, that it really is this fragment A, the 600 nucleotides that is the core enhancer that really provides all of the activity. But it also means that it is human-specific DNA mutations, substitutions, that are required for the gains and the activity that we see in the human enhancer. And it also tells us that it's really the cumulative effects of multiple mutations all within the single regulatory element that are critical for giving us that boost of activity in the human version of the enhancer. Now, all of this basically tells you that human ECE18 can function as an enhancer, and it doesn't tell you that it's actually an enhancer of engrailed. So how do we address that? 
So the first way we try to address this is in the only human context that's available to us experimentally, and that is cultured human keratinocytes or skin cells in a dish. Now, in each of these cells, in the nuclei of each of these cells, in the DNA, you have the engrailed one gene, and downstream of it, you have the sequence encoding ECE18. So what we did was we used, um, basically infected these cells with a giant repressor complex that uh, we could guide to specific regions of DNA. For example, we could guide it directly to sit on top of this human ECE18 construct, the uh, region of the DNA, and asked, what happens to engrailed expression? So essentially, if we drag this complex down, it's a silencing complex. So normally, sorry, I should say, so normally, human ECE18, if it's an enhancer of engrailed, is able to move around and contact the engrailed locus to affect its expression. Now, if we guide this giant repressor complex, what happens is we basically make this region of the genome inaccessible. So it can no longer contact things like the engrailed locus. Now, if ECE18 is somehow important for regulating an engrailed um, expression, we should see uh, a reflection of, um, of that in the levels of engrailed now being produced by the gene. And so that's exactly what we assessed here. So what you're looking at here is the relative level of engrailed expression from the engrailed one locus in human keratinocytes when we target the repressor complex to ECE18 or when we don't. And it turns out that whenever we target this big repressor complex down to human ECE18, we see the expression of this engrailed one gene drop by about 40%. This now tells us that the normal function of this element in human skin cells is to promote the expression of engrailed. But human skin cells are not a developmental system. Okay? They never go on to make sweat glands. In fact, nobody knows how to make sweat glands in a dish. And what we really want to know is, is human ECE18 able to control and upregulate the expression of engrailed in that magical time window when the placodes are forming and acquiring their fate, right? When sweat gland number is being specified in the skin. And for that, we have to move to the only developmental system that's available to us, and that's the mouse. So um, in order to assess the um, developmental potential of human ECE18 um, in this context, we genome engineered um, mice, uh, humanized ECE18 mice. So what we essentially did was we used CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing technology to cut out the ECE18 uh, sequence from the mouse genome and replace it with the human version of ECE18. So what you end up with is mice that have a completely normal genome, except that instead of having mouse sequence at ECE18, they have human sequence, they have the human enhancer. These are humanized ECE18 knock-in mice or KI mice. So the first thing we did was ask, well, what happens to the expression of engrailed during that all-important time window when the placodes uh, of sweat glands are forming in the skin of the bottom of the paw? Um, so just to explain this graph to you, what we're looking at here is, again, the expression of engrailed one in the skin. And we're looking in three different classes of mice. Okay, so um, mice, as, as also like humans, inherit a copy of each gene from their mom and, their, and one copy from their dad. Okay, so in this case, these mice, this is a group of mice that inherited two mouse copies of human ECE, uh, sorry, two mouse copies of ECE18. These mice inherited one mouse copy of ECE18 from one parent, and from their other parent, they inherited the humanized version of the enhancer. And these mice carry only the humanized version of the enhancer. And what should come out of all of this 
is that mice that have the human enhancer express higher levels of engrailed than their wild type litter mates. So now this is consistent with um, human ECE18 being able to function as an enhancer to increase the production of engrailed during exactly the time window that we care about. But can this enhancer, through its regulation of engrailed, affect the number of sweat glands the mouse forms? So to um, address this question, we generated mice uh, in which we sensitized the number of sweat glands the mouse would build in its paw to purely to engrailed levels. Okay. Um, and essentially we did this by giving the mice one defective copy of engrailed that didn't function called basically an engrailed one knockout allele and then one wild type, one normal copy of the engrailed gene. And we either, and these mice either also, the wild type copy of the engrailed gene was either paired with the normal mouse uh, ECE18 sequence, or in another class of mice, it was paired with the human enhancer instead, the only functional copy of the engrailed gene. Um, and then we looked at how many sweat glands these mice now go on to form as adults um, in this medial region of the bottom of their paws, which we call the inner foot pad space. Now, the reason we looked here is because we know from previous studies that we've done in mice that this region is acutely sensitive to engrailed one levels. And so we've already lowered the level of engrailed in these mice because they only have one functional copy of the gene. And this region is really, really sensitive now to engrailed one levels and therefore uh, to uh, how much a sweat gland number will be affected by engrailed. So what we observed when we counted the number of sweat glands in these two different groups of mice was that mice which um, carried the human enhancer had about a 17% increase in the number of sweat glands that they built in their feet. So this tells us that human ECE18 is able to promote the formation of eccrine sweat glands in the skin. And because we sensitized our entire experiment to engrailed one, this experiment also tells us that the ability of this human enhancer to promote sweat clamp formation is occurring through its upregulation of engrailed one expression. So now we can build a model, which we have done. Um, about how humans could have evolved more sweat glands relative to our closest primate relatives. So our data suggests that ECE18 evolved to be an enhancer in simians, an enhancer that is active in keratinocytes. Our data also shows that the successive mutation of this element, right, it was mutated at least 10 times during human evolution, produced a much stronger enhancer through a cumulative effect. Now, the stronger enhancer acted to activate expression of engrailed more and more and more, and that higher expression of engrailed in turn acted to induce the formation of more sweat glands in human skin relative to that of our other ape relatives. So in all, we think that we have found at least one developmental and genetic mechanism that underlies the evolution of what is one of the classical signature traits of our species. And with that, I would really like to thank you for your attention. Um, I also really want to give credit 
to the people who actually carried out all of this work. Um, this was a project spearheaded by a very talented postdoc in my lab, Daniel Aldea, with the help of current and former lab members. Um, none of this would have been possible without Yuji Atsuda, our collaborator um, at Harvard, who carried out um, the lentiviral injections to generate transgenic mice, which is how we performed our screen to identify and grilled one uh, enhancers in the first place. Steve Schaffner, who taught us some of the computational analyses we used, and Rexy for her help in validating um, our humanized knock-in mice. Our funding sources for this project, um, as well as, very importantly, um, the mice, without which we would not have actually been able to, to test the hypotheses So when provide functional evidence to validate them. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.